Great. Well, good morning. Can you, is this, is this working? Can you hear me? Great. Awesome. Thank you. Appreciate that, Tim. <clears throat> yes. Well, my second time being able to preach here. So I always appreciate the opportunity, and I hope what I have to share today is useful uh, to yourself and to myself as well. Um, the passage that we're looking at today is the crossing of the Red Sea, which reminded me of the pool, right? I mean, it's not the Red Sea, but uh, it is a body of water that we have in town here. I learned to swim right next door over there at the pool, although when I was a kid, it wasn't an aquatic center. It was just a pool, and there were no slides, but we did have a 10-foot diving board. That was so fun. Um, anywho, I learned to swim there. I nearly learned to drown there, actually, uh, which comes naturally to most folks. So I was probably third grade, maybe. I don't really recall the age, um, just the event. So it was the sort of thing where kids hang on the side of the pool, and they get out of the pool, and they jump into the pool, and then they come back to the edge, and then we hang there. And so that was the sort of thing that I was doing as a child. And I can recall uh, Jackie Van Skoik. I don't know if the Van Skoiks are still in town. My mom might know. Anywho, Jackie was my age, um, and she would jump into the pool, and she would jump really far. And uh, I was just a kid, and I was impressed by this, and I thought, well, I can jump farther than that. And so I did, and I paddled back, and I kind of look at her like, hmm, check me out, huh? What do you think of that? So she jumps farther. The advantage that Jackie had is she knew how to swim, and uh, I really didn't. You know, I just sort of flounder and dog paddle. And uh, so I was impressed with how far she went, so I got my back all the way up against the wall of the building there and ran and jumped, and I was so impressed with how far I went and uh, was sort of satisfied as I was hitting the water, but then also instantly panicking because I thought, oh, boy, that's I'm a ways out here. And so it was just like in the, in the movies or in television where you... Um, you know, you, you see like figures under the water and then you come up and you see the sky and you're like, ah, and then you go back underwater. And this was right where sort of the door is in the middle where, they, where the people who worked and sold candy or whatever would go in. And there's a lifeguard stand right there. And I was right in front of the guy drowning. Like, this is what he trained for. I wasn't on his radar at all. I was going down. Um, and then uh, about 10 minutes later, um, I, I don't, well, I died. It was terrible. Uh, I'm just kidding. No one died. Uh, no, just, just, I'm sure it was seconds or whatever. Uh, I felt a couple of hands uh, on my shoulders, and this guy, probably, I don't know, a junior hire or something, drug me over and set me on the edge of the pool. He was probably tired of being splashed by me or something. And uh, anyway, in that moment... In my mind, well, I remember the instant feeling of relief, like, oh, oh thank goodness, I can breathe. This is good. Uh, it's like I passed from death to life, and it's like the waters were all around me, and I was terrified, but I had a Savior, in a way, who brought me out of that chaos and brought me to safety. And the idea, and I don't know if anyone else has a near-drowning uh, story they can share. Uh, great topic for Mother's Day, I guess. But... Um, <laughs> But anyway, the Bible is full of this kind of language, right? In Genesis, the world comes out of this, this watery chaos. Like, this is how the earth is created. God brings order out of the chaos. 
And um, in the Psalms, it's full of language of people who are sort of facing death um, because of the chaotic waters that are about to destroy them, and we have a God who saves us. And so, you know, in the land of 10,000 lakes, I think it's a good, this is a good metaphor for us. Uh, in our passage today, the Israelites, uh, as a nation, are in a very similar situation. You know, they've gotten out of the frying pan, which is slavery in Egypt, and they've moved into uh, the fryer, which is sort of imminent death and destruction in the wilderness with Pharaoh's army coming down upon them. And so today, we're going to take a look at the central act of salvation in the Old Testament. Um, yeah, the guy's name was Corey. I can't remember. I can picture him. He eventually worked at Reichel's. Anyway, he saved my life. So if you see him, say thanks. Um, but for the Israelites, it wasn't the pool in Cori, it was the crossing of the Red Sea. Um, personally, I believe the Exodus is historical. I believe that for whatever reason, God made a covenant, a contract. He started a relationship with a particular person named Abraham and his family. Uh, I believe that his descendants ended up in Egypt in slavery. Uh, Moses led them out of bondage to live in a land that God had promised them. You know, if God is real and all of this happened, I sometimes wonder why. Why did, it, uh, why did God do what He did? And oftentimes when we read the Bible, we, we just don't know. And just like in life, we don't know why God does what God does. Um, but in this passage here, I think we have so many instances uh, in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. This passage is mentioned about two dozen times in the Old Testament directly, and it shows up in the New Testament as well. I think we can say that God was revealing uh, to them what was central to His character. Like through this process, the Israelites came to know that, that the Lord, that Yahweh, uh, was a God of salvation. He was a God who frees His people through His power and grace. And I think like these timeless or eternal qualities of God are displayed in a powerful, powerful way right here at the start of our Old Testament. Um, and uh, they'll be repeated throughout Scripture. So I'm going to turn uh, to Exodus chapter 14. If you've got your uh, Bibles handy, let's turn there together. We'll go strictly analog today. We won't do any. Well, there's, can you read that? Is that, is that print too small? Okay, we'll, we'll go straight analog from the old school paper versions here. So I'm going to read verses 5 uh, through 15.1. It's kind of a lot to read, but to be fair, it's, these words are way better than mine. And uh, it's a great, it's an exciting story. So here we go. Uh, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done? We have let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt uh, which officer, with officers over all of them. Of course, the chariot is like the ancient tank, so they're really loaded up here. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped at the sea by Pi-Hahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out, to the Lord, they said to Moses, 
Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Okay, ancient sarcasm. It exists. People were sarcastic in the ancient world, right? I think Moses knew that, oh, actually, there were graves in Egypt. Uh, anyway, what have you done to us bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we have said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Uh, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. Coming between the host of Egypt, of course, host is army. Uh, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on the right hand and on the left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning, watch, and in the morning, watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let's flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them and against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, upon the chariots, and the sea returned to its normal course when, when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all, of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel who walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power uh, that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Then Moses and the people sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. And the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for um, being a God of salvation. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would be with us now as we uh, dive into these passages, as we think about um, how you work in salvation, uh, what all this means to us today, Lord. I pray that uh, you'd be with me, that my words would be useful uh, and beneficial uh, to our church. Amen. All right. It's good to read passages like this aloud in church, I think, uh, because they, they, kind of, they sort of speak for themselves. Um, you know, the importance and the meaning of the passage is really front and center. Um, so I think, I think we're good. I think we should just uh, 
No, I'm just kidding. We won't head home just yet. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll dive a bit deeper into the text, if you will. Uh, so let's take a look at a couple of the ideas, the big ideas that come out of this passage. Uh, the first and perhaps the most obvious in my mind would be the glory of God. In, in the crossing of the Red Sea, God wants His glory to be made known uh, to Israel and Egypt alike. And glory is a great word that we often use in church, right? But we rarely, we rarely talk about what the word actually means. Uh, this happens often, which is okay. Um, but what does it mean at its core? Like, what is glory? So if an, if an alien, you know, landed in the middle of our congregation and said, bleep, bleep, boop, what is this glory of which you speak? You know, how would you reply? What would you say to this alien? And thankfully, the Old Testament speaks uh, very practically, very simply, in um, sort of very earthy ways about glory and about God. In the Hebrew, the phrase here is the ikavda, with the verb kaved right in the middle of it, which means to be heavy, right? So glory and weight go hand in hand uh, in, in the Old Testament. So if you translate it in a very literal way, it might uh, read, that I may become heavy. It's like we're talking about a weight program, uh, a weight management program uh, for God, uh, which sounds uh, not blasphemous, but uh, sounds strange. But it's not that. It's not a weight management program. I take this very simply. In the eyes of the Hebrews, in the eyes of the Israelites, and in the eyes of the Egyptians, God will be made weighty. He will be made great. He will be made large. Um, Pharaoh will be made small. He will be made light. Um, in English, we often talk this way. You know, well, that's a big deal. Oh, it's huge or huge. Uh, or that is enormously important, right? We talk this way in English. And I think it's the same idea of the Hebrew. So in the most basic way, God is saying that he should be considered greater than Pharaoh. And we might take this for granted, you know, um, you know that the creator of the universe is greater than uh, a single human within creation. But for the Israelites and the Egyptians, the answer to who is greater wasn't necessarily obvious. Uh, the, uh, Pharaoh was treated like a god. People worshipped him. You've, maybe you've heard this about ancient Egyptian culture. Some ancient cultures like the Egyptians and the people to the east of Mesopotamia, they liked to be worshipped like gods. Eventually, Alexander wanted to be worshipped like a god, and the Romans liked to be worshipped like gods. Uh, and the Israelites who had just gotten out of Egypt, well, some of them just said they would rather be slaves again to this guy. And so who is greater? That's a great question. Who deserves glory? Who is weightier? Now, the Old Testament describes it in a very tangible way. The word glory in the New Testament is a little bit different. Uh, it's, it's a little more philosophical. The word that they use in the New Testament is doxa, as in the word doxology, if you've ever sung that. Um, and it comes from the word dokeo, which means to think or to seem. And so for the Greeks, glory then is the idea of opinion or estimation, the idea that God is highly esteemed. He should be the highest in our thinking. So the weightiness in the Old Testament and high esteem in the New Testament, what do these you know, two perspectives have in common? And I think of it as, uh, in simple terms, as a matter of priority, right? God, the idea of God, the worship of God, our concern for God, all of that, God should come first in our thoughts and in our actions. And this is what it means to glorify God. 
There's nothing more important in a way. And if you, the more you think about it, like the more this makes sense, right? The infinite creator of the universe, the source of all being, the source of all goodness and truth and love and wisdom, he should be first. He should take priority, shouldn't he? If not, if not God, then who? Um, and I believe he desires us to do this, not because he's a megalomaniac, right? Like, I got to get my glory because I'm, I'm bigger than you. It's not something like that. He's not terribly vain. God desires us to prioritize him because it's right to do so. And it benefits us. So Pharaoh was like selfishness personified. Um, he treated himself like a god. He wanted to be worshipped like a god. Was, uh, what was the result of all this? Well, he became a cruel monster who enslaved other people to do his bidding. And so this was perhaps the most fundamental lesson that the Israelites could have learned or should have learned. You know, and we're sort of in the same position today, if you think about it. You know, there should be nothing weightier in your life, nothing of higher esteem in your thinking than God. Giving Him priority leads to a life of happiness and peace. Like Jesus in, in uh, Matthew 6 says, uh, seek first God's kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Make God your priority and life becomes good. Or like John the Baptist, right? He says, Jesus needs to increase and I need to decrease. It's the, these are the same thoughts, the same language that we see so early on here in the book of Exodus. So anyway, the glory of God. Uh, another idea we, I think we see in this passage is the idea of waiting on the Lord. Um, something I've sort of been philosophizing about in my own spiritual walk these last few years. Uh, probably because of Francis Chan and that book, Crazy Love, which is crazy good if you're looking for a book to read. Um, anywho, after being literally freed from their chains, the Israelites, they quickly forget the supernatural power of their Savior God, and things begin to fall apart. So let me just flip back here to Exodus 4, and let's get their quote once again with our ancient sarcasm. Oh, I'm in Exodus 14. Okay, Exodus 14, 11. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we might serve the Egyptians, for it would have, better, would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians, to be slaves, than to die in the wilderness. And I love Moses's, Moses's, the response of Moses is great, right? He, uh, he doesn't jump into an argument with them. He doesn't uh, condemn them for their behavior. He, uh, he encourages them, and he instructs them, and he points to God. So in verse 12, Moses says, uh, Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us, oh, no, 13. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. Don't be afraid. Stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord. The Yeshuat Adonai, as they would say in Hebrew. See the Yeshua of the Lord. That's literally what Moses says. Of course, Yeshua is the word for salvation in the Old Testament. Of course, it's where we get the name Joshua. It's, uh, if you turn that into Aramaic, then it becomes the name Jesus. Um, salvation is what this is all about. The people are carried from death into life, from slavery to freedom, 
through the act of a mediator, Moses uh, brings about their salvation. Um, there is a reason we see parallels to the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. We first learn of his character in these pages of the Old Testament, this God of salvation. And you know, by the way, I don't, I don't know if you've ever looked at uh, sort of the percentage of your Bible, about three-fourths of it. I think it's between two-thirds and three-fourths. Is it that large? I think it is. The Old Testament is enormous. And a lot of people think, you know, why, why do we have all this stuff? Um, why, is all, why is all of this in here? But I think this is how we should read the New Testament. This is why we should read the New Testament, namely to learn of God's character. And so we, in the story, we first see what God is like uh, here in Exodus. And, you know, as C.S. Lewis puts it, you know, God spent centuries hammering into the Israelites' way of thinking the sort of God that he was. Like, this is how God chose to reveal himself to humanity. And we're still reading about it today, which is wonderful. Uh, and just like it was a process for Israel to come to know who God is, it's a process for us as well, right? And what better way to grow through this process, to come to know our God personally, than by reading stories of how he's acted in history. So that's a good method of reading the Old Testament in my estimation. So Moses commands the people to wait and see the salvation of the Lord. Um, waiting on the Lord is an idea that shows up all throughout the Old Testament, right? And, we, and I don't know if we, I think we could talk more about this in Christian circles. Uh, in the book of Psalm, Psalms, Israel's prayer book, uh, you see David and the other psalmists using this language all the time, like in Psalm 40, right? I waited patiently for the Lord. He finally heard my cry. He lifted me up out of the pit, out of the mud and clay. Uh, Isaiah uses this language all the time, waiting on the Lord. Um, and I think that gets to the heart of sort of the revolution of the New Testament. The New Testament really talks this way. Um, we wait. God is the one who does the saving, right? In 2 Corinthians 12, uh, for the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weakness, insults, hardships, and uh, persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In our weakness, God is strong. He's the one who does it. Or in Ephesians 2, right, the very famous, for by grace you have been saved through faith. That passage talks about us being the workmanship of God. He's the one who's doing the work. Or in Philippians uh, 1, uh, he who began a good work in you, he will be faithful to complete it. God is the one doing this work in us. Uh, and we look to him and we wait on him. Or in 1 John uh, chapter 4, uh, why do we love? Why do we love God? Because he first loved us. His love comes into our life and it changes us and it gives us the ability to do what's good. And so, like, this is, in my mind, this is the glorious thing that separates Christianity from every other religion on earth, right? I think every other religion offers humanity a way of building their bridge to God or to the infinite or to nirvana or whatever the ultimate end is. It's on you. It's on your shoulders, and it's something you need to do, right? It's a tower of Babel that's going into the heavens that you need to build, um, but that doesn't make sense from a Christian perspective. And I think if you stop and think about it, how could that ever even be possible? How could we finite human beings ever find a way to perfection? Um, I mean, have you seen what it looks like when, when we're in charge of things? I mean, I, I'm a fan of history, both ancient history and modern history. And uh, we're, I think we as humans are good at making a mess of things, right? And so there's this Christian idea that the world has fallen and we need a savior. Um, 
This New Testament's full of this. He works within us, changing our thinking, changing our desires and our attitudes, and the result is that we naturally want to do good things. We become trees that bear good fruit, right, to use the New Testament's language. It's not that we've got to do all these things we get to, right? And I think, um, you know, but this is a process, a process of becoming more and more like God. You know, in theology, they would call it sanctification, you know, sanctus meaning holy. Well, what does holy mean? Holy means to be set apart for God. And how do we more and more become set apart, devoted to God? Um, If God is the one who does the saving, and we can't sort of white-knuckle our way into perfection, if we can't build a tower of Babel ourselves, what do we do? I think we wait on God. We look to God. We follow God. We pray to Him. And we wait on the Lord to work in our lives. And we look, we expect And then when you do that, at least in my experience, when we do this, things happen, right? Attitudes change. uh, Behaviors change. It's like in Philippians 4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everybody. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about everything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, ironically, Paul said this while he was in chains. He's talking about ultimate freedom and salvation while he's in chains. Of course, the Israelites found salvation from their chains. But Paul found a salvation even greater while he was imprisoned. And, of course, the Israelites had this physical salvation. The Old Testament often focuses on the physical. Uh, New Testament often focuses on the spiritual. And... uh, what salvation do you need in your life? I mean, maybe you're looking for a physical salvation. I'm sorry. Dave had this experience before, too. People have physical problems, and they want healing, and we have a God who does healing. Um, I mean, many of you know my, my father. <clears throat> Our God is in the business of healing, but praise God, he offers us a salvation that is ultimate, that's eternal, that goes beyond the physical. So when we face distress, when we face panic, when it feels like the armies of Pharaoh are coming around the corner and they're about to destroy, it is at moments like these, Paul says, we should bring our prayers, our petitions before the Lord and experience his peace and his strength. Now, way down the Lord is hard. Imagine for the Israelites what that would have been like, you know, (laughs) the the armies coming down. He's like, "Just, just stand there. And he also says, be quiet, right? Stop your complaining and just wait. Um, that would be hard. And, and in my experience, it's hard to wait on the Lord. It's hard to, to be still and to wait. Um, real quick story, once upon a time, and this is just a, sort of a practical example of a time I waited on the Lord and it, and it brought salvation. Amelia was in soccer. There she is. She was in soccer and it was 25 minutes, would you say? to the soccer place, 
We lived in the, way out in the, in the sticks in rural Ohio. And uh, I told you about how they talked last time. Who's up there and we seen and uh, we was, I seen. Anyway, so we're playing soccer, and I love them all. I'm not trying to poke fun, uh, maybe just a little bit. Anywho, we're at soccer, and it's fun. We drive 25 minutes there into the city. Amelia does her soccer, and we drive back. And I say, Amelia, where's your bag? Oh, I left it. And so I'm like, okay, so we've driven 50 minutes, right, round trip for soccer, right? And it was cold that day. And uh, so now, guess what? Well, somebody probably picked it up, but I've got an, an extra 50-minute drive ahead of me that I didn't need. And, of course, you folks living in, or us folks now living in Mora, you know, we can't imagine a 50-minute drive for soccer. And, uh, and I could tell Amelia was ready for me to yell at her, and I was ready to yell at her. We were about to have a big yelling fit, but I knew it, would be, it wasn't right, and sort of that... Um, giving into anger and hate, and well, not hated. I was hateful about the situation. Giving into the anger was so tempting, um, but I didn't. I paused, and I waited on the Lord, and I sort of counted to ten, and He changed my attitude, sort of like right there on the spot. It doesn't for me. It doesn't always work that way, but He did, and we put on some fun music, and we had just a great hour drive to the soccer field. And it's like God brought a little bit of salvation. I think this is just God's nature. He, he works this way. <clears throat> so God comes first. He deserves our glory, and we should wait upon the Lord. And then what? What comes after that? Well, according to today's passage, then we sing. God becomes our focus. We watch and we follow Him. Then we join together and praise Him for what He has done. We sing. And there's a very spiritual quality to music. Um, of course, the word music comes from uh, muse in Greek, right? The muses were spirits or gods in their mind that inspired songs and singing, which, you know, we're not into polytheism here as good Christians. But the Greeks believe that sort of music came from the heavens, right? And uh, music often feels that way to me. And I think that music, there's sort of a spiritual metaphor to it where our voices are joined together as one, and we're supposed to be one body, but there's many pieces to it, like men sing lower than women, usually. Um, some men have high voices, some <laughs> that flow, I guess. But men sing lower, women sing higher, so we're singing in octaves. And then some people, like Paulette or Dave or many others of you, like to harmonize. And so the voices blend together. And so we're one body with many pieces, and that's sort of happening when we sing. And the instruments join in. Uh, if we don't hit any wrong notes, like I, I hit a few today, hopefully you didn't notice. But we all come together, and um, our unity is there. And then if we're affirming what's true, and we're praising God for who He is, and we join together as one, um, it's a wonderful thing. So looking at these three verses, we have glory, we have waiting, we have singing. Glory. Is, is God at the center of your thoughts and your actions? Are you living a life that glorifies Him? If you're not, please draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. As Jesus said, there's no greater commandment than to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's good to give God glory. Waiting. Do you have a reason for waiting on the Lord? Are you facing Pharaoh and his army? Look to him and wait on him. Turn to our mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, and put your faith in him and see the salvation of God. And then last, singing. Do you have a reason for singing today? If yes, 
then it is good for you to praise God, even today. And I think that's what we have left. We'll sing together. So let me say a prayer, and the worship team will come back up, and uh, we'll sing a song together. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for Moses and the Israelites and how you acted in saving them from the Egyptians, Lord. I pray that uh, we would give you glory and have you at the center of our thoughts and our actions. And we pray that we would wait on you uh, when difficult times come uh, and in our daily walk with you, Lord, looking and expecting for you to work and change our hearts, change our minds, our way of thinking, our ways of living. Lord, I pray also that we would sing, that we would sing praises to you um, even now. Amen.